Hello and welcome to the Herbal Hour podcast, the podcast for all things natural healing. Every week we have on a guest to talk about a topic in holistic healing. These guests can be naturopathic physicians, doctors, herbalists, acupuncturists, anybody with an interest in holistic health of the mind, body, and spirit. This week we have on licensed naturopathic physician, Dr. Angela Hardin to talk about the role of intuition in medicine, synchronicity, paranormal events, psychic connections, and the more mysterious aspects of healing. If you're listening into this podcast, thank you and I hope you enjoy. And be sure to check out our channel on YouTube, Herbal Hour Podcast. Welcome to the Herbal Hour Podcast. Today we have Dr. Angela Hardin. She is a naturopathic physician and resident at our beautiful school, NUNM. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Bogdan. How are you? Good. We had such a a nice, deep conversation uh, before this about, you know, how like COVID, the quarantine, everything's been uh, affecting us. I hope to touch back into that. Uh, But to get us started, can you tell our uh, listeners a little bit about your your backgrounds, who you are, what you do? Sure. Um, So I've always sort of had this thirst for finding the truth uh, even if it was in unconventional sort of settings or, or subjects, um, from, from the point of being a little kid, I always wanted to get to the bottom of things. And I guess you could say, I didn't really trust that just because somebody told me it was this way that I should believe them. Mm -hmm. Um, and even, you know, my, if you talk to my parents ever, they'll tell you that they would have like friends over, uh, when I was a kid to hang out and I would, um, have conversations with their friends. And so I spent a lot of time just around adults, like starting at a young age and sort of made friends with them, but would be having a conversation about something and their friend would say, Oh, you know, this thing is such and such and start talking about like this thing as though it were a fact. And I would stop them. And in my bratty little, you know, five year old six-year-old voice say well why is that like how come that's true uh you know prove to me that this is right and not this thing and like really push them and yeah sure a lot of kids do that but I think that uh you know they'll tell you I was very strong-willed and I wouldn't wouldn't really believe things for, for being taking them on face value and I think I've carried that sort of stubborn quality for lack of a better word with me um into everything that I've done. So it did take me, you know, several years to find naturopathic medicine. I mean, a few years ago, I didn't even know that that was a a thing, but um, I've always sort of had a background looking into, I guess you could say alternative healing. um, And a little bit of that goes into like energy medicine. And, you know, we can talk more about that too, but just looking for things that felt like they were hidden or they were misunderstood or, you know, in our case, like our medicine at one point was traditional medicine. It hasn't been since like we've been around, but it was like the old school medicine. Mm -hmm. So it's like really coming back to the roots and coming back to like what was true all along before things kind of got derailed. But, you know, there's sort of every element of me wants to go dig into um, things that are misunderstood or things that were hidden or things that we can't see or can't, you know, like astrology, like energy medicine, like Mm. homeopathy. I mean, those things, they're, they're not tangible things, but to me, that's so much more interesting than just this surface level 
oh, push that button and that thing happens. Like, okay, great. Now I know how to push that button. But what happens when I create this other button? You know, like, can I make that other button do something else? Mm -hmm. Or what if I use something other than a button to get that to happen? You know, and it's just like, I've always had that, I've always had that drive to sort of find find the root cause. And so that brings us to like our medicine. And that's one of the, that's one of the sort of tenets of our medicine is like finding the root cause of disease, not just going based off of somebody's symptoms, but knowing that every individual is going to have their own, their own um, sort of experience of, of disease or of life or um, different ways that they may get off balance and, their story that's so individual really shapes that for them. So, um, and that's another piece. It's like, not only do we get to the root cause, but we have to be able to go down these sort of individualized paths with people to find what works. And so like you, I mean, I think that you're like a mythical and a mystical thinker and that's like super fascinating to me. (laughs) And, you know, we could, we already had a 45 minute conversation before we even recorded this about, (laughs) <laughs> like existential <laughs> yeah about the meaning of life <laughs> and how we're basically in samsara and, like, and this whole this whole situation is kind of like this you know it, it's it's definitely really hard but it's we were we were talking a lot about like the perspective on it being the most important thing is like um i really like the story you shared about when you uh went out of the country and you saw how people lived mm-hmm. um and then you came back and you just looked at everything kind of differently mm-hmm. and i I think that's, um, we get used to things and then when they're taken away, you know, it's like all of a sudden, all the the demons of the mind come up and the problem isn't like the things or the things that were taken away. It's like our own mind. And that's what I've been finding a lot through this. On the topic oh, yeah. of, um, sorry for, um, uh, on the topic of root causes, mm-hmm. um, I find that's probably one of the most interesting principles of naturopathic medicine. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not really well defined mm-hmm. in terms of like, what is actually like the root cause of disease? So what's, what's your view on that? Cause I, I like to get really philosophical and think Absolutely. about it. Like, what does it mean? Like to cause something like how far is like deep enough to say that? Oh, yeah. no, it's, such a, it's such a good question. And I have actually, I have asked myself this question a lot because I believe that sometimes we, we hit on that root cause, like when we're in clinic and I'm, you know, working with a patient or I'm working with a doctor and sort of watching their process or seeing a student's process, um, in trying to find, like, trace it back, right? Like, where did this begin? And in some instances, I feel like, oh, okay, maybe we did hit on something really deep there, but I don't think we're going very deep a lot of times. Like, you know, oh, maybe it's a vitamin deficiency. Oh, well, okay. Well, is that like, is that what explains it all? And like, what happens when you treat that deficiency and then it comes back? Like, what is that? And, and so to me, there's something there. And I would go as far to say um, that, you know, maybe there's like a past life like element here is like, what is that root cause? Well, so my mom actually does a lot of energy medicine. And for the last like 10 years or so, it was something she completely stumbled into. And I've had some really interesting conversations with her about 
And it wasn't ever anything she was seeking out necessarily. This is what's interesting is it sort of just found her and she would get these messages when she would be working with people. And a lot of that time was just spent in silence. And she started telling me these stories about, now this doesn't happen with every visit, but it was happening with somebody in particular who um, had cancer and like her blood work all looked good, but there was just some element of it that wasn't, didn't feel complete. Like the healing didn't feel complete. Mm. And she kept getting physically ill symptoms, even though her lab work looked, looked fine. Um, and eventually, and you know, my mom would get these voices um, talking to her and saying like somebody's name over and over. It was a female name over and over. And she would ask the patient and and they'd say, I don't know what that, that name means. And so weeks went by and that same name just kept coming to her when she would sit in silence. And eventually, I guess something opened up in this person that she was asking about this. Um, and she said, oh, I found out it was someone in my family tree and that person was a slave who was like a distant relative of mine. And I guess just like having that recognition, making that connection and sort of like, yeah, that recognition of like, oh, is it possible that that ailment or that illness that that person had had for so many years of her life, did it really stem back to her relative who was a slave that she didn't even meet? I like to think it was because that was a pivotal moment, like just her recognizing that that person's mm. name, that voice, that person's name just kept playing in my mom's head. And she had no idea who this person was. She was just sort of like the vessel, you could say for like, okay, there's some, there's some ancestral karma here that needs to be healed. So I would say that sometimes the root cause of disease comes from before we were even alive. And so that's like, right off the bat, like we're going way out there. Cause sure, there's maybe some of your listeners are like, well, I don't believe in past lives. How can you prove that anybody's had a past life? Well, mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like my proof and I don't need like, I don't necessarily always need tangible proof. It's just a feeling or it's an intuition or whatever you want to call it. But for me, I explain it as how else do you describe or explain the fact that you might meet somebody for the first time. And for whatever reason, it's like, you know, that person, you just, you're at ease with that person. It's like, you've known them for years and you can just sit and talk and you're open to them. And then other people, you're like, oh, I don't trust that guy or that girl, or I feel closed off to them, or I just feel kind of awkward around them. And then you just meet those people that you're like, oh, I know you. And I don't know how I know you, but I know you. That to me, that feels like a past life thing. Mm -hmm. So root cause, whew, I think it can go way far. Yeah, it goes, uh, it goes, it goes really deep because uh, on on one level, there's kind of like the pathophysiology aspect of like, you know, what causes, you know, like hepatitis or what causes like liver disease. And it's like, oh, it's like this virus or or that. But mm -hmm. what causes someone to be susceptible to it? That's what's always interesting to me is like not everybody who gets in contact with like a virus or bacteria gets sick. So there's always something like missing out of the pure uh, germ theory perspective of like, right. What are the elements that actually lead to the disease? Because what's interesting about like medicine overall as a science is that it's really mysterious. There's so many things that are mysterious, like remission for, uh, from cancer, for example. Like why some people who, when given a terminal diagnosis, 
like you have like three months to live. This is like super advanced end stage cancer. They just say, you know what? Screw it. Like I'm going off to an Island. I'm just going to enjoy my time. And they lived there for like 10 years. And it's like, what, like what actually led, what sparked their healing. And I think for me, the only honest way to look at healing is coming at it from a place of, I don't understand this. Like I don't know. I don't have the answers. There's a lot of things that are written. Some things make sense, but there's always unexplainable things. So there's one particular story. There's, um, there was this woman, um, uh, forgot what her name was, what context it was in, but she had this thought that kept coming in her mind and this voice that was telling her, basically, you need to go, you know, you need to go to the doctor. You have like such and such condition, like, and this voice just kept pestering her, bothering her. And she was kind of just resisting it. Like, am I going crazy? Am I going insane? Like, I'm definitely going insane. I'm not going to the doctor. And the voice just continually, continually telling her, like, it wasn't even her own voice. She was actually hearing a voice. Um, and the voice got more and more urgent. Eventually it was like giving her specific instruction of like, you need to get your like colon checked out or something like very specific. And then, you know, finally she brings it to the doctor and she's like, I don't know, like what's going on? Like, can you just like look into this or whatever? And they're like, what do you mean? Like, why would I look into it? Like, you don't have any symptoms, you're healthy, you're young, et cetera. Like, why are you so afraid of this? Um, but, you know, so she's kind of just like went home and she's like, all right, well, I guess, you know, they didn't find anything wrong with me. So uh, the voice kept coming, was even more urgent, uh, urgent than before. Eventually she came back and she just demanded, like, just do this test for my own sanity. <laughs> um, and they did the test and they actually found out she had colon cancer. Like it was like very specific. Like the voice was telling her, like, check out this and that. There was no reason to believe that she had it. She had no family history of it or anything. It's not like she had any even digestive issues or any symptoms. Um, but this voice was telling her, go get this checked out. And the story ends up really well because she ends up getting treated by this other doctor who I think the voice also told her to like seek out. Um, and then she, you know, she's fine. She, she caught it like so early that she is completely fine. And she has, as far as I know, like many years later was, was okay. And it's like, where does that come from? Like, if that's a true story, who is that voice? Is it her own higher self? Who is that? And how does it know? Well, so one of the things you said earlier about, um, just kind of tying it back to what makes one person susceptible to this and not susceptible to that, or another Mm. person is not susceptible to the same virus, even if it's present in, you know, within (laughs) six feet or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, and you know, I've, I've, uh, I've thought, I've thought a lot about that too, which is that, you know, I think our microbiome, if we're talking about like physically, what can make us all individualized and our immune systems. And we think about the microbiome and how sort of like this diversity that exists within each of our bodies. And it's made up of like bacteria and microbes and it makes us look a certain way and act a certain way and feel a certain way and be susceptible or not to things. So I think like, and we're just now, like we're just scratching the surface of like the microbiome and how how much it influences like, you know, mood and brain health and susceptibility to disease and symptoms and all these things. Um, but I also think that there's this piece of, you know, 
at least what feels like sort of old school ways of thinking about medicine where everything was always about genetics. Like, oh, well, your mom had colon cancer. So you're at this increased, you know, percentage of getting it by this age. But with breast cancer, I don't remember exactly the percentage, but it's more than 50%. Maybe it's as high as 80%. You're going to have to check me on this. Um, percent cases of breast cancer, there's no genetic cause, meaning there's there's no first degree relative that had breast cancer. And yet, let's just say for conversation's sake, check my sources, 80% of breast cancer patients are not related to genetics. That's freaky, right? Especially because, I mean, genetics was such a huge, I mean, that's part of our like intake. That's like asking about family history. Like that's a huge part of our sort of intake questionnaire for a new patient or when we're trying to determine their risk. And like, if genetics really doesn't play as much of a role, and then of course, epigenetics is how do we how do we influence our own genetics in the life that we're living today by, you know, our toxic burden mm. or what kinds of foods or things we're consuming or where we live in the world and, and how does that influence what genes get turned on and off? And sure, you know, maybe that's a part of it too, but I mean, isn't it crazy to think that genetics really it's not, it's not the whole picture. It might not even be half of the picture here. So it, it, I think it's this, this old idea. Yeah. Uh, There's this saying that if you take away like humanity's gods, they'll create new ones or or they'll find new ones. Mm -hmm. So this idea of like fate versus free will Mm -hmm. runs like thousands and thousands of years into the past in all philosophies and all religions and it almost seems like the argument of like environment and personal choice versus genetics is just like another layering on that fundamental conversation. Do we have control over what happens to us or are we completely faded? And there's strong opinions on both sides. Like, no, like, you know, genetics determines everything. And without genetics, there is no disease. So that's what should be focused on. It's like this predeterminism, like fate. You're Mm -hmm. born this way. Your parent had this, so you will probably get it. Um, And then Mm -hmm. there's the other side of it, which also like the other side of polarity, which I think also could be harmful is like all your disease is due to your personal choice. All of it, Mm -hmm. which is like, it gets into this realm Mm -hmm. of like uh, almost like disease shaming or something. It's like, you're sick. Like you cause that to yourself. And that's like the far, the far end um, of the spectrum. Um, Mm -hmm. Even with things like, uh, I don't know what you, what you think about uh, Louise Hay's work of like the the mentality playing into the like mm-hmm. cancer formation and like saying like oh there's like throat cancer you don't ex- express yourself or or things like that um, right and there's something really really interesting in that because that's like the psychological with the physical mix but if you take it very far then it's like uh, blaming for blaming somebody's uh, disease on that person, like completely, like, even if you don't know, like you, cause we don't actually really know, like if it's that, or if it's de- genetics or if it's all mixed together or if it's their diet, but you right. know, telling like a, like a patient or a person that, you know, you did this to yourself. Right. <laughs> right. And it might not even be true. 
So that's like probably where we err more as like on the naturopathic or alternative Mm. side is like having this belief also that might go to extreme of like, oh, you're unwell. It's because your diet's wrong. But it's like, then you meet people who do all the things, right? Who they do the diet, they do the meditation, they live immaculate lives, but still they suffer from like crippling anxiety. Still they suffer from like insomnia. And it's like, and every doctor they go to just tells them it's their fault. Like just do this or take this. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. There's so much about medicine and extending it to just life that we can pretend that we know and that we have all figured out and that everything boils down to eating this type of diet or Mm -hmm. not smoking. And, you know, what do you tell the person that gets lung cancer and has never smoked a cigarette in their life and has been breathing clean air and has no family history and, you know, just was all healthy Mm-hmm. And then this happened. Um, you know, why is that? Is it mm-hmm. is it because they didn't have a will to live? I don't know. I mean, I think in some instances, um, you know, when, if there's not a strong will, then people are taken down easier, you could say. Um, mm-hmm. But that's not the whole story either, because I think that there are people that... Um, that live really great, interesting lives and contribute a lot to the lives of others. And, you know, they may become ill and die. And then those people that are left behind that look and say, oh, well, that person didn't, they didn't deserve to die. And then, but then I have to question like, well, why is death bad again? Right? Mm -hmm. Like why, why are we putting this like horrible, scary label on death? And, that was something that I thought of when we were talking kind of offline before this conversation, which is that that to me, that fear of death is so Mm. much more uh, sort of pervasive and threatening than the virus that we're currently dealing with or all the viruses or all the bacteria. It's like everybody's going to have their, their day. Right. That doesn't mean that I don't care about people living or dying. Of course I care about that, but we're all going to die. Right. And for me to say that someone might think I'm insensitive by saying that, but, but we're the speaking fact is, the truth. It's like, we are, you didn't we say are, it. Nature says it. We as a culture at the very least are afraid of death mm-hmm. and some cultures celebrate death instead of wearing all black and crying all day and night for days and days and days um, and feeling so much regret and so much guilt about that person dying. Some cultures are celebrating. They're, wear, they're wearing colorful um, outfits. They're, they're laughing, they're dancing, they're throwing parties. They're celebrating that that individual had the chance to go to their next thing. And that, again, that comes back mm. to whether or not you believe in in reincarnation, Mm. which I do, you know, full disclosure, I do. Um, And maybe, I mean, but do I, but do I fear death? Sure. On some days. Yeah, I do. I think that that's a, that's a, it's so ingrained in our culture to fear death because we have that. Well, at least for the people left behind, right. I fear Mm. that someone I love will die and that I'll never see them again, at least not in the flesh. But, you know, I've had, an, I think I've had enough recent experiences over the last few years 
of people very close to me dying and actually feeling a lot closer to them once they were dead mm. than I did when we, when we were alive and talking. Um, I actually can feel their presence very strong, um, even though they're, they're gone. In, they're not in this body now, right? But so I think that that's another piece. It's like, what are we fra- afraid of losing? Is there a way that we can, if we're afraid of losing relationships um, and those close to us because we won't be able to see them again and hear their voice again, can we sort of going back to the intuition piece, can we tap into a way to communicate with them that's a little bit different from how we've been doing on this dimension? You know, and that's like going way out there. That's asking a lot of people. Um, And there are days where I cry about people that I can't see anymore. And I just wish I could tell them this thing. And then I think, okay, well, let me figure out a way to tell them that. I can't Mm. see them. I can't touch them. I can't really hear their voice in the same way. But I still know that they're, they're there, whether it's that memory of them or there's some way that their spirit or soul or whatever they become is still with me. So, um, I think that's the fundamental question of, of, of life of being conscious really is realizing your own mortality and then questioning like, why am I here? Like in the meantime, and I think for me at least, and maybe for other people, it's not really specifically the fear of death. That's as haunting as the, the fear of not like, getting there before I die. Like the fear of like, not like reaching whatever it is that I want to reach, whether that's just like enlightenment in some traditions or have, have like a really good like work or have a good career, have a good family and all this. And like feeling like the time's, you know, ticking, but you don't really, um, you don't know if you're like doing it right. If you're living your life to the most, if you're going to have like regrets and what I've noticed about the fear of death is that when you're actually like really living, you don't like fear death. You only fear death when you're like uncertain or you're in like confusion. And mm-hmm. during these times, I'm sure that thought is coming up a lot because I mean, there's the overt threat of death, which is it's biologically hardwired to like be afraid um, when you're in like a dangerous situation or, or you think you're in a dangerous situation, but it makes you question like, if everyone's, you know, set to die, it relativizes everything. Like it makes everything seem so unimportant except what is actually important. It's like, and that's what I've been thinking of a lot lately is, uh, although there's a lot of like demands and responsibilities and work, it making the time to just like speak to friends and like really be present with them because like, it just reminds me that like, it will end someday and whether or not we'll be aware after that is a question. I mean, there's the, there's the one side of the theory, which is, you know, something else continues on and maybe you're conscious in some sense or some realm or in the Tibetan traditions, like the Bardos, or maybe it's the materialist view that like, you know, lights off and you're not even like aware that you're not aware. So like that actually seems kind of cool too, in its own kind of way. (laughs) It's like, it can't be bad because like, if it real if you're really not there, like there's no one to say good or bad. So like, actually, like, it's like, at the very worst, well, maybe not the very worst, maybe it could get worse. But from the materials <laughs> view, <laughs> is, um, you know, you, you go, you 
just die and it's the same thing as like before you were born like do you remember before you were born like it's the same thing mm-hmm. like before maybe you're in interim state or something and i think the question is really um maybe it's even particular to humans you know to some degree i don't know if other animals like you know question their own like mortality because yeah. you know obviously they're afraid of death like when it's in front of them they try to preserve right. their lives um right but i don't know that they go roaming the wild wondering when they're gonna die unless yeah. of course they they have fear because they can see the danger right yeah. it's not like they're they're running through a beautiful field and they're wondering like huh i wonder i yeah. wonder if i'm gonna die yeah or they're a deer because deers are always just afraid of dying or whatever <laughs> um but i wanted i wanted to to come back to the, what you were talking about with uh, like that, that woman hearing the voice inside of her mm-hmm. head and, and what is that? And do we, do we believe that? And I mean, I absolutely believe it because I just hear like weird stories all the time, right? Like I'm doing air quotes for those of you that can't see, but uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, nothing's really that weird to me, to be honest, like I could go way out there. Um, but I think that this idea of like intuition, if we want to call it that, um, to me, I feel like that's, that's an intuitive, like you're getting a message. It's a warning and it's just another version of a message that your body or your immediate surroundings is trying to tell you about. Now you could say that sort of like different synchronistic events or mm. synchronous events, um, synchronous, I don't know. Yeah. Synchronous um, sounds good. Synchronistic. They, Synchronistic, yeah. Synchronistic events that happen around you, whether like you had a dream about something and then you woke up and that thing happened, Mm. or you were about to leave your house and you had a thought, oh, I wonder if I did this thing. And then I wonder if I turned the oven off. And then it turned out that you, you didn't, but you sort of ignored that thought. And then like maybe a fire started as a result of you, but you had that intuition there to tell you to do it. Or maybe some series of events happens and you don't think that those events are related. And then you find out like, oh, that thing happened to me. And then I heard that other person talking about a completely separate event, but it was like really similar to what I was talking about. And all of a sudden you start to see like synchronicity or serendipity or, you know, what all those things. Um, and that to me, I feel like is sort of proof that there's this like network whether it's on another plane or it's part of our plane, but there's this network sort of going on um, around us all of the time that when we choose to tap into it, like everything is sort of serendipitous. Um, And it's like, it's not a, it's not coincidental. And the more we start to pay attention to those messages or you know, even if we can't really make sense of a dream that we had, but we're like, I don't know, something was weird and I feel like something's up or you had a dream about somebody from out of nowhere. Um, I remember this has happened to me a few times, actually. Uh, I've had a dream about somebody. It was totally random. Like I had a dream about somebody that I didn't know that well. It was like a friend of a friend. This was years ago. I dreamt that she like had her gallbladder removed or something and she was really sick afterward. And I mean, I had met this person, but I'd like hung out with her at a music festival and she was nice enough. I didn't know her that well. And then I sent her a text message the next day and I was like, this is so random, but I had a dream about you that you had your gallbladder removed and you were super sick. And she was like, dude, this is real. And I was like, 
And so I'm like, well, I don't really know what to do with that information. I just figured I'd tell you. <laughs> <laughs> just to see if it's like, is there something weird going on? Yeah, there's something weird going on. I have that too with dreams. You I can't know, even tell you how often I'll have a dream about somebody that I didn't talk to in like months. Mm-hmm. And I'll wake up in the morning and at like 4 a.m. I had a message from them while I was sleeping. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. what that, 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 that stuff happens it's to me network. so often. It's the network, I'm telling you or whatever. There whatever has to at least be it. telepathy. Like it's something. I, it's, it's something. I, I will, I will, you know, say that maybe, you know, some things aren't true, but telepathy definitely has to be true. Like it's, it's the lowest like possible explanation for how some of this stuff is possible. Like it's like, there are so many various ways for us to get information and to get signals. And I think that some of it can be in the form of dreams. You know, there's all different, there's all different sort of levels or, or versions, maybe not levels that like one is better than the other necessarily, but there's all these different manifestations of, um, you know, there's like clairvoyance, there's mm-hmm. clairaudience. So some people will, will hear things and that will be like their, you could call it a higher self giving them a message or some higher being or bigger force than them telling them a message or mm. showing them a message in a dream. You see it or feeling it where all of a sudden maybe you get like chills up your spine or you start to, in some cases, if you're really sensitive, like maybe you're in the presence of a patient or somebody who's having a lot of like physical suffering. And all of a sudden you start to feel that pain because, you know, and and maybe that's just another way of um, getting that information. And so that you, if you're getting that signal, it means that you have to do something about it. Now, deciding what to do about it and also kind of trying to figure out how do I interpret this? I think that that's sort of like a lifetime of work in and of itself. Um, But I feel like intuition Um, just sort of as a catch-all term, is like a muscle. If we pay attention to it and we give it attention and we use it more and more, it will start to show up more and in more tangible ways than being something that feels kind of vague, like we're not exactly sure if that was actually a a random thought we had or if it was something more than that. Like, Mm. Did I randomly just think about the oven because I was cooking earlier or was it truly like a, no, this is a warning, like turn the oven off because you know what I mean? Like sometimes it's like, did I dream about that because I was thinking about that person or did I dream about them because something's happening and I need to reach out to them. Mm. Um, So sort of like trying to distinguish uh, what is like actually an alert versus What's just the thought, you know, and it is difficult because Mm -hmm. I don't think we're, we're not used to functioning in sort of an an intuitive, like energetic realm in our very dense material world Mm -hmm. where we don't believe it unless we see it in front of our own eyes, we can reach out and touch it we hear it from the news, whatever it is, like, or we read about it in a research article. If it's not in one of those places or coming at us in in that form, we might not believe it to be true, but there's like so much more. There's so many ways for us to receive information. And like, I would say that a, a symptom in a body, and I mean, this isn't my idea, but this is 
you know, I've heard it enough times to know that like, it's not the symptom we should be worried about. Like we should be happy that we have symptoms because these are signals that our bodies are sending us Mm. to tell us to look, let's look deeper at this, what's happening here. And maybe in some cases it's like, oh, this is a new thing and the body is hurting in some way. And this is the, the new signal that this is happening. And then there are those situations where maybe somebody's um, had something traumatic happen to them and maybe it was emotionally traumatic and they have pain and symptoms that just last with them for years, even though the threat has been gone, mm-hmm. but the body is still sending the signal, which is that this hasn't been healed yet. And sometimes like you were saying earlier, well, what is the root cause of that? If we, if we feel like the root cause of this person's, you know, 10 years of chronic pain is because they were at war, they're a military veteran and they can trace it back to this one year that they didn't have pain and then this thing happened and now they have pain. Well, let's, you know, get them with somebody that does trauma work and maybe they need, you know, healing from PTSD and, and we need to, the, the great thing is that we have so many therapies to go beyond just giving them something to numb the pain. So I feel like this is all just signals mm-hmm. coming in different forms. Yeah, intuition is, uh, is really fascinating to me. Um, my, my dad, who uh, is a general surgeon, and he doesn't really believe in all like the mystical, like <laughs> woo-woo type stuff. He's very like kind of hard-headed, yeah. rationalist, more of like a naturalist. But he tells yeah. me, you know, all the time that he's had numerous like patients who came in who seemed like they were completely all right. And they didn't really have like any symptoms or any reason really to get a surgery. And he said, Mm -hmm. he just felt like their abdomen. He was like, no, they need to go to surgery. And he couldn't really say like why. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, they would kind of be like, uh, okay. Like if you say so, okay. And then they would go in and then, you know, they would have like an emergent condition that was like unsuspecting. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's interesting too, that these like experiences of intuition happen to everybody, even people who don't like Mm -hmm. believe in them. It's just, uh, do you know about Myers-Briggs at all? That system Mm -hmm. of like personality type? Yeah. So like intuition is like one of those personality types. There's like the introvert extrovert. Then the next thing is like intuition versus sensation. So it's, it's interesting because they're opposite polarities, like either Mm -hmm. sensation or either intuition. So the more you focus on like your senses and what is, what could be proved to you by, you know, your experience and what you can feel, the more your intuition kind of goes in the background and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting. I'm guessing you're probably more of like an intuitive type. Uh, I definitely, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I'm not an intuitive type. (laughs) Um, But... (laughs) No, I just know what I'm going to do about it. (laughs) I feel intuition. Um, but it's interesting that it's actually, um, according to Carl Jung's uh, studies, what later became Myers-Briggs, that that like sense of intuition, what he actually talked about as, per- he called it perception by way of the unconscious. Um, meaning that you're like perceiving reality through like an unconscious mechanism. Like you don't know how you know, like you don't know what information is even going into the decision, but it comes to you as like a bow tie package. Like this is what mm-hmm. it is. And mm-hmm. it, it brings up the, the case of like our unconscious mind is everything that could be said to be unconscious, including spirit, including everything that we don't perceive, including, you know, mm-hmm. other spirits. 
is Mm -hmm. part of like what makes us have thoughts. It's part of what gives us certain dreams that seem to come true later. And it's like, do the dreams come true later because the like unconscious mind knows it's going to happen or Mm -hmm. is, are the seeds for the future already in it? Like, Mm -hmm. because like, there's this way of thinking like this is bound to happen and that part of your mind already can almost project that. Or maybe like, you know, with the leaving the oven on, it's like, you caught a glimpse as you were walking out. It was an unconscious glimpse, but some part of you knew like, uh uh-oh, 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 but it's not the conscious part. So, and getting into like the difficulty of that is like, how do you differentiate between just being like, like an anxiety thought and like a real intuition? I know that that's, what's hard. And at least I don't know, uh, you know, a way to sort of say, this is how you can tell other than, um, rather than brushing off the thought, even if we just take one step to sort of investigate it. And I kind of do this process in my own head where I'll have a thought that seems to come out of nowhere. And I, and I sort of sit there for a minute and I think, is this a true like warning signal, like an intuition, or am I drumming up this thought from some, something else, something cognitive. Right. And, but I always have that little voice in the back of my head that follows up and says, yeah, but what if you were to write this off as just another thought or being anxious? What if you wrote that off and then you didn't check on the oven and then a fire started later? Wouldn't you have felt shitty that you (laughs) didn't double check just to see if it was your intuition. And so I've started to, even if when it's little things, especially when it's something just like, okay, I can unlock my door, turn around, check the oven real quick, and then go back outside. Like it's not a huge deal to sort of follow that through or, okay, I had this dream, you know, it was kind of fucked up. I'm going to go ahead and text this person just to make sure they're okay. Cause I had a dream that their like kid died or something mm-hmm. nine times out of 10, their kid's going to be totally fine but maybe something else happened like, Oh my gosh, they started kind- kindergarten and their mom's like heartbroken. Cause they, it's like loss on a different level. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it could be something that's not literal and sometimes it is literal. And so if it doesn't take me a lot of extra going out of my way to kind of follow that through just to make sure, okay, like, well, what if it was an intuition or what if I all of a sudden have been, gravitating toward like lately I've, I've found myself gravitating toward like uh, subjects on a certain book, for example, or like books on a certain subject. Mm -hmm. And I'm not much of a reader. So anytime I like think to read a book, it's like, Oh, okay. Something's (laughs) up. (laughs) But um, just as an example, like, okay, all of a sudden I'm gravitating towards these, these subjects. Why is that? And then I'll have a conversation about it with somebody else that says, Oh, that's really interesting because like, I, I was just watching something about this or I was just studying something and, and it's like, and it wasn't about like the virus. It wasn't about like something super popular that like everybody's reading up on right now. It's like, we're just sort of like, we're connected and it's in the ether, right? Like there's something about it that's in the ether right now. Who knows why? But I think just like following through um, on those just like to be a little bit curious and to see like, okay, well, why was that? Like, maybe this person will think it's weird if I ask them and tell them I had, or like ask them like, why was I dreaming about you last night? 
but like, that's the worst thing that could happen was they think they look at me a little bit funny and like, I'm pretty weird anyway. So they're probably yeah. going to give me a weird look anyway. Like I, I might as well just make sure <laughs> things are okay. Yeah. And like that one girl, I was like, I had a dream that you got your gallbladder out. And she was like, yeah, I've been fucked up ever since that happened. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I, what I'll do with the, with the dreams thing is I won't even tell the person I had a dream. I'll just act as if it's true and just like try to get information on it. Like, oh, are you doing okay? Like anything going on with yeah. this, that, and this? And they're like, right. like dude, like, yeah. <laughs> How do you know that? I had, this is, this is a crazy intuition story. So true story. I heard it uh, from a girl that I once knew back in undergrad and she was saying one day she was kind of just sitting around not doing anything. And she got like a really strong urge to call her friend and she didn't really know why. And um, she kind of like resisted it for some time as we all do with our intuitions. That, that might be an interesting differentiating factor between like those like deep, like fate intuitions versus like right. a kind of like, you know, like a mild intuition versus just like a thought is like a lot of times when it's those intense intuitions, like it forces you to do it. It's like, you're like, Oh no, I don't need to turn back. But you're like, no, nah, I'm going to turn back. Like something inside you finally pushes over and like gives you a little bit of like energy to do the thing anyway. Right. So, so she ends up calling this friend by that mechanism of just like, all right, well, I guess I'll call them then. Right. Um, and she just asks her like are you doing okay like without really much of even like you know an introduction yeah. or anything yeah. and the other the girl basically you know starts like crying and she's like well, why are you crying and she's like mm. she's like I'm literally standing on the ledge right now about to jump off and oh my god you just called me oh my god Did yeah she, she didn't jump I hope she didn't she didn't jump wow. um uh so what is that like there's some like alarm system that just like rings. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> God has yeah. to get involved. Like, okay, hold on. Let's find who can well, contact her right now and stop this. This is not meant to be. And like with, with mothers and their children, I think that it makes sense for that strong bond mm -hmm. to be there. Like there's so many examples of like mothers with young children where the mom will be on the other side of the house and all of and they'll be like paying attention to their other kid who's maybe like sick with a flu or something and all of a sudden they're like oh my god and they get up and run out to their swimming pool and their other kid is about to drop in and drown and they didn't see the kid they didn't know that they were there but something like the mommy alarm went off and they went running cuz the kid and the mom are so mm. like energetically and spiritually connected and and i think that you know obviously we might not be all like related necessarily but something a deep friend connection can have that same thing or someone that's just they tend more toward being open and and, and listening or being receptive to those intu intuitive sort of uh messages coming through and or maybe it's people that are like more destined to be healers i mean there's there's all sorts of people out in the world that you know have tendencies toward one thing and uh, maybe healing and being sort of receptive to those subtler messages is part of that. I mean, I, I think that to a degree, we all have the ability to be an intuitive. Um, and I don't know what makes one person sort of more tuned in than others. I've never really understood that, but I think that that is 
that is the case. And I don't necessarily think it's how you're raised. Cause I mean, my parents are super weird. And so like, there's no, it's no wonder that I'm weird, but like, for example, I have a friend who, uh, sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum, she's super weird like me and her parents are like the opposite. I mean, like there was no way, at least in this life that she got her intuitive tuned in nature from her parents she got it some other way. Now, I don't understand that. Is that a past life thing? I don't know. She has it though. Why is that? I don't know. Mm. And the interest um, too, like what, what makes us gravitate towards certain subjects mm-hmm. and certain kinds of learning and certain kinds of careers and make us do kind of crazy things like take wild leaps of faith into places where you have no idea what's going to happen. And then looking back, you can see like a string of events that led you exactly to like where you are today. And thinking about that gives me a lot of, um, gives me a lot of peace. Cause I, I remember that like everything that I ever, as long as I was following what like excited me and what interests me, like I was always on the right path. Mm-hmm. But like if I ever veered off, you know, I also found my way. Um, mm-hmm. And you can't see it while you're going through it. You can't like, there's so much like acceptance that there just needs to happen. I feel like for us of just like, we don't know like where we're being led or by who we're being led, but still we got to walk. So that reminds me of some other thing. Um, So before I went to a naturopathic school, I was a massage therapist. So I did Mm. a lot of body work for a few years before going back to, um, to medical school. But I would have some interesting experiences just like laying hands on people and as far as like past life and sort of intuition stuff goes. And so one time I had, and usually I keep quiet or like when I would be doing massage, like I wouldn't just like drum up conversation because people get a massage usually to relax and like zone out. So I'm like, I'm only talking to you if you're talking to me. So I would be quiet and whatever, but every once in a while I'd get just like these strong visions of whatever. And I'd think about it and I'd sit on it and I'd be kind of quiet about it for a while. And then I'd think, would it be super weird if I like asked this person about what that might mean? So there have been a couple of times where I brought up stuff and like, I didn't know anything about the person, but I'd bring up things about, um, like one of them was like picturing this person like dancing ballet. And this person had, um, I think she had a, at one point had Lyme disease and had nerve damage in her leg to where she had to walk with a cane. But as I was, you know, giving her a massage, I'm like picturing this person as a ballerina, like very vividly. And I was just like, this is random, but like, does this mean something to you? And she was like, oh yeah, I danced ballet before I got Lyme. Right. So like, that's like a little example, but that's a thing. And then another person who I did craniosacral on, which is a lot of times I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just putting my hands behind your head. And I like, my intention is that I'm not the one doing the work, right? I'm just like the vessel for whatever you want to call it, a higher power, angels, God, whatever label you want to put on it. The higher force is doing the work. That's where the healing is taking place. And sure, like, the person putting hands on the back of your head, they're, hopefully they don't have their own agenda and like sort of getting in the way of whatever, like divine intervention needs to happen. But so I would always just kind of like put my hands there and I'd sit and wait and I would just let things happen. Like I didn't have a plan as to what I was doing. I didn't even have to like necessarily have the treatment look a certain way or do a certain thing in a certain order for every patient. I would just sit there and I would just think, 
I want whatever the highest good for this person to happen if that person is open and ready for it to. And without fail, you know, people would fall asleep on the table, they'd start snoring, and then they'd wake up and they'd say, I don't know what just happened, but something just happened. And it's like, you just got to get out of the way some of the time, right? So a friend of mine who's um, like a spiritual teacher, he would tell me, and he, he gets voices from, I guess you could call it divine intervention or some, someone that's not him, something that's not him. And he's, it's pretty clear that it's not his, his own thoughts and his own agenda. But again, like to a skeptic, that could be hard to sort out. But he would say that whenever he had his most intense sort of spiritual downloads, you could say, it was the times that his body and his mind were completely exhausted. So he would like go on, he would like do a marathon or like a triathlon or just physically exhaust himself before sitting down to like either make notes or have like sessions with people on whatever his divine messages were coming through. And he was so much closer tied to his own um, sort of like spiritual process or energetic, you know, whatever work was being done that was, was higher than him. It was coming through him more easily when his own mind was getting out of the way. So I think that that's a, a big piece too. It's like, you got to trust your intuition because like you were saying, you know, the sensation will outweigh the intuition. And so it's like, or vice versa, it's one or the other. Like if you're, if you're trying to talk yourself or out of something or logic through something, a lot of times that's just going to make your intuition shut up because it, it can be hard for those two to coexist, I would say. Um, so I know that that's sort of like a, whoo, a long-winded way of saying like, sometimes it's really not about what our agenda is or what we're trying to think or logic our way through. But if it's a strong enough message, and even if it was like the first five times where it's like, yo, go get your, your colon checked out and you're ignoring it. Hey, go to this specific doctor. Um, hello, you're not listening to me. Can I make it more blatant? Like, go do this thing. Like if you ignore your intuition, I think something, I imagine something not great would happen as a result if you just ignored those messages. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that point about the, the mind getting in the way of it is a really important one. Uh, I wanted to ask you, like, what are some ways to uh, improve your intuition? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that is probably one of the, the key ones, at least, is quieting your mind down a little bit. Cause like, if there's so much chatter going on, like intuition isn't always just like this really loud voice. It's more like you have like a sudden realization when you're not even thinking of the thing and you're like, Oh, yeah. that's like intuition. Uh, not when you're mm -hmm. trying to like figure something out, like logically our minds are mm -hmm. not very, in terms of logical thinking are only able to do so much. Um, mm -hmm. But intuition encompasses everything that we're not even aware of. You know how they say like, the conscious mind is maybe what, like five or 10% of our whole experience yeah. of mind. And the other 90% yeah. is like all these other unconscious factors and uh, images and complexes and like past occurrences, future expectations, then throw in like spirit, like guardian angels, maybe who knows? <laughs> it's, it's all, yeah. you can call it, you can call it guardian angel, you can call it high spirit. At the end of the day, we don't know what the F it is at all, but it's real. And it affects us. 
and our own mind was it our own mind is it some other being i mean it's it's almost impossible to know for sure but so how do you uh, hone that intuition i think it's interesting because a lot of us right now due to the pandemic are kind of being forced to be a little maybe a little bit quieter and certainly more isolated than we're used to being mm. and we're in we're sort of stuck in our own thoughts. And um, I think that being silent and sort of like from a meditation background um, and meditation can look so many different ways. You know, you don't have to sit with your eyes closed. You don't have to chant a mantra. There's walking meditations. There's, I think even if you just expand it to mindfulness, but I think a lot of it is like sort of exhausting the mind, like I was saying earlier to get out of the way. And I think that that can look like a lot of different things. I also feel like um, the average person doesn't find themselves very grounded to the earth on a day-to-day basis. So we're up in our heads and we're thinking a lot of the time. And when a stressful situation or like an argument or conflict occurs, we go right up to the head to try to figure out like, either we need to stay and fight or we need to flee and we're not grounded, relaxed, connected to the earth's energy, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I think that the key is like connecting to the earth energy because that's the planet that we're currently living on. And you can still be grounded to the earth and like connect with other mm, entities, beings, forces, whatever. Um, but I think that really the mind gets in the way. So, you know, sitting quietly is great if you have sort of like cleared away all the excess stuff Mm -hmm. first. It's kind of like, you know, forcing a little kid to stay inside and like be quiet and have quiet time when all they want to do is just run outside and get some of their energy out. So you're sort of like battling uphill if you think your kid's going to like sit quietly like an angel when they're just like, no, I have all this pent up energy. I need to just go run outside first and then like eat a good meal. And then like, I'm all yours. Right. So like, I feel like with our minds calming them down is sort of like a similar process, like go spend some time outside. And even just being outside, you can actually have just like intuitive spiritual experiences out in nature. One of my favorite things is to do barefoot walking. And especially if you're living in a city, because there's so much sort of there's people around us in a big city, there's pollution, there's all that. And there's like EMF and, you know, all that that we could get into, which Mm -hmm. I won't, but um, there's a lot of interference. And for those of us who are intuitive, a lot of times the intuitive people and the empaths kind of get lumped together and there you've got some hypersensitive people for better or worse. Right. So like a hypersensitive person might get sick more often because they might be taking on other people's stuff. They might not have great boundaries, but like they can pick up on all these subtlety things and use them for good. So it's like, it's neither good nor bad. It's just different. But when you're in a city, there's so much like interference that can kind of, it's almost like having two signals going in at the same time. And then you just get like static and like radio noise. And you're like, wait, I'm hearing two songs at the same time. I don't know what is intuition and what's, just background noise and what's a Mm. random thought and what's this. So just kind of like trying to quiet that Mm. barefoot walking. I love, um, I think actually taking Epsom salt baths is a really good way to get grounded and get in your body. 
and then doing deep breathing, journaling. Um, I think these are all processes of sort of detox in a, in a way, like detoxing whatever might be in your immediate field or or in your body that's like sort of sending mixed signals and confusing you. And then another huge thing, and I like journaling just because it's like, let's free write, let's see what comes out. Um, a lot of times I've gotten, I've had some interesting, like, I guess for lack of a better word, um, like spiritual downloads when I've just sat, it was after I was doing a silent retreat. So yes, it was a very specific setting. It was like out in the boondocks in New Mexico. And I was silent <laughs> for three days, like with a group of people also doing a silent retreat. And I was journaling every day, getting some like really interesting messages. And it didn't feel like it was from my normal like thought process. But I think just like writing things out. And then another big piece, uh, just because we live in a a busy world and we usually are interfacing with people is if we have some sort of like conflict that's unresolved, um, trying as much as we can to like verbally resolve that, or at least like speak our minds with people so that, or have some sort of closure. Uh, even if it's like you write them a letter and you never mail it <laughs> or you burn it or whatever, like making, making, um, sort of making closure with people that you feel at odds with, um, I think kind of gets your mind to stop focusing on those things that you wish you could have mm. said or having regret or like anxiety that something's hanging over your head because it's like you're giving someone else all the power. But like, I feel like all those things kind of, they get in the way of like messages that we would, want to be able to receive, but we're so busy talking, like thinking about this fight we were having with somebody or how much you hate this or this or this. So there's a lot of things and I certainly don't have it all figured out, but at least I know that those, those things have helped. And then I think that the simplest thing of all really is to just, if you're at like a crossroads or you're having a hard time or you don't know what to do next, you feel stuck, whatever it is, um, just like, ask a question and wait for the answer. And you can do this in whatever way you want. You can journal it. Sometimes I pull a tarot card. You know, I have like, I have my astrology chart read every year. Like I'm, I'm that, I'm that person, you know, <laughs> I'll get my crystals out. I'll get my pendulum out. You know, there's like so many toys. There's so many like spiritual toys. Mm -hmm. It's like, there's just so many ways. I think that um, talking to people that you really, that are like your people, uh, and just having like that interesting conversation. And I think that there's a lot of ways to just kind of open your, mm. your intuition because you're, you're putting your mind, you're giving your mind by having all these like positive things around you, you're giving your mind something good to sort of soothe it and not be so like distracted by things to where like your intuition is getting crushed. Mm. I think it's like, I think it's maybe like, negative thought and negative experience that's getting in the way of our intuition. Mm. Sometimes it's even like extreme stress brings yep. out our intuition. It's like, yes, when you're just, so this is something that maybe other people have been experiencing, but yeah, like a couple of days this month when I was just like, so overwhelmed with, with stress from all, all sorts of different factors, I just said, okay, I'm just going to go for a walk. 
and I'm just going to like sit down by this tree and I'm just going to sit here until I figure out what's going on. And like, not even like to think it through or something, but just like to sit there and be open. And in that state of like great stress and tension, I've noticed all sorts of like different revelations of like sudden insights and like seeing things that I just wasn't seeing and things coming into clarity. Uh, sometimes, you know, like great, great, you know, pain, great uh, tension, great suffering brings um, brings the truth out of us. Unfortunately, sometimes you need to have that terrible breakup to really realize like who you are. And it's, it's such an unsavory aspect of life that has to be that way. But no, you're right. Like and, and that's true. Like there has to be, like we were talking about offline earlier, there has to be uh, whatever, you know, flavor of suffering. There has to be some version of suffering for us to feel like mm. that growth and that next step of evolution can happen. Mm. Um, that is the push or like that pressure cooker that finally blows steam off. Like that, that is sort of the catalyst. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it, it, it is really interesting and, and we'll fight it. Like we'll fight it as much as we can. Right. Like we want to stay, I think just comfortable as long as we can. Um, but that that's true that like those moments of like, okay, well, sometimes it's, it's those difficult things that kind of push us to have like those revelations. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting in terms of like uh, healing and, and medicine, because, you know, sometimes there'll be people with like chronic diseases or even like terminal things where you can't really do anything. So what's your role as a healer? And the question is like, I guess for me is like, how can I help that person learn what they need to learn from that? Even if maybe they'll never really recover from it, maybe like I mean, there's this case, let's say somebody has like a terminal illness for three months, like they have three months to live or something like that. And it's for sure, like mm -hmm. it's, you know, metastasis all over the body and it, it you know, there's no miracle that's going to save them in this mm -hmm. case. Um, the question is like, how can that person live those three months better than they've lived their whole life before because maybe that whole person kind of throughout their life they did this and that they weren't really sure what they wanted to do and you know they were worried about this and other things that didn't matter and they feel like you know their time passed them by and now they have you know the now at least the stopwatch or the clock or whatever is visible to them like it's there regardless of whether you see it or not but it's visible mm -hmm. and um my my interest is like helping that person just have the best like life, even given everything it is. I mean, at the end of the day, like, I think that's what medicine and healing is really about mm -hmm. is like improving people's experience of life. Mm -hmm. And a lot of time, like disease, you know, causes like a worse experience of life. So you, if you can, you want to get rid of the disease somehow or help the person get rid of the disease. Mm -hmm. But when you can't, it's like coming to terms with it. And this is going back to uh, the previous, uh, we were talking about death mm -hmm. uh, and like how there's this like resistance against death to the point of like people who are like on their deathbeds dying, they're just trying to, you know, keep them alive by any means necessary. Mm -hmm. And in different cultures, they would think that that's like barbaric and actually really inhumane to keep somebody alive just to keep them alive rather than like 
accepting that they're dying and like helping them through the death process, like especially in like the Tibetan traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, so where do you think our place is in that as like healthcare professionals when, when dealing with yeah, death? Yeah. The thing that we all try to avoid. Um, I think that just there's, there's a lot to be said in my experience um, as far as like that healthcare provider as just being a person that holds space mm-hmm. without really doing much of anything or trying to change or fix anything. And I think that whether it's on the brink of death or somebody coming in, cause they're just like, I'm tired all the time and I don't know what to do or, or I'm, or they have this laundry list of, you know, complaints or concerns and you don't really know where to start with them or you don't know what to do with them or they just, they talk for a half hour and you still have no real direction as to like, nothing's popping out in your mind as far as like, oh, I think I could help them by doing fill in the blank. But I think that there's a lot to just holding space for somebody and creating that safe space where, you know, they can sort of bring whatever they they have there. Um, and sometimes just listening to their story is kind of all they wanted to begin with. They want to be heard. They want to be seen. Um, and certainly, you know, doing the best we can to set, to maybe connect them with people that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to find, whether that's someone else that might help them, you know, in, in a healer realm or somebody that's like, let's get you connected back with your friends or your family or, or what about like religious or spiritual support or what, you know, like kind of looking, um, looking for these other less tangible, um, outlets for somebody to feel supported. I mean, I I think that there've been a handful of visits that I've been a part of with patients where I was just like, I don't have a clear idea of what this patient is even coming in for. And yet, you know, the visit would sort of go on and we'd like maybe make some really basic recommendations, but really for the most part, I felt like I was kind of like the therapist where they would just come in and tell their story and they would need to get that out to someone who would listen and not shut Mm -hmm. them down. And I give them some basic stuff and then they'd come back a couple weeks later and they'd kind of rehash that whole story again. And then you're like, so what is it exactly that you need? (laughs) And you end up repeating the same things as the last week. And then they're like, okay, great. And they feel like so great when they leave and you're like, what did I just even do? Like you almost feel guilty, like taking money for that. Mm -hmm. But I think that, uh, I think that, it's, there's a lot of power to just kind of sit and hold space for somebody. And like you were saying earlier, like the expectations, I mean, maybe this was before we started recording, but our conversation was that maybe our expectations are really what's hurting us. Mm. And, you know, maybe we expect that our life was going to go this way, or maybe Mm. we expect that this relationship was going to go this way instead of that way. Or we expected that we were going to get well from this disease and um there's uh like what happens when that doesn't work out and expecting someone not to die or something or expecting someone not to die like and then you feel betrayed because your plans didn't work out 
Um, and so I think, you know, just being there with people, but one thing that I'm really fascinated by is, you know, people who work in hospice and there's all this, if we're talking about just sort of like the transition from, from life to afterlife, um, there's all these different therapies that exist. Like one of my, my, um, it was before high school. I think it was like my middle school chorus teacher or music teacher. She, the, when I talked to her a few years ago and she might still be doing this, she was doing something for, as her career called music or thanatology, which is playing music for people who are about to die. And it's like a really intense training program. And it's all very specific, like the type of music that they play and you know, the amount of sort of like hours that they do before they get this certification and being with people and sort of like holding that space. And that's like, I think that that's super cool and like, and awesome. Like that, that there's a whole career dedicated to the, the playing of music for people who are dying. Like that's so Mm. cool. And so I think that like our ability to sort of heal and be there for people. It doesn't, it's not necessarily defined by what we can fix or what we have to add or what we have to take away. It's like that we're just there with them and it can look like a lot of different things. And that, you know, just holding that person in like a positive light And, you know, you could say prayer. It doesn't have to be prayer. It could be some version of prayer that really goes, I think it goes a long way, especially, and it doesn't mean that like, if you know of something that might really help somebody, it doesn't mean you deny them of that and all you do is pray for them. That's not what I mean. But I think that there's, there's so much beyond just, oh, well, we could inject you with this. We could give you this pill. We could do this surgery. It's like, that only goes so far because a lot of times those things are done for the patient and it doesn't matter. Mm. Right. And like, like what you were saying earlier, why is it that one person gets this type of cancer, this person survives, this person doesn't like, why is that? Mm. I don't know. But I think that, you know, it's such a vulnerable place for like a healthcare provider or healer to be in because that patient, um, they, and they're the patient's family, like they entrust you with sort of, being the guiding light, whatever that means. And it might be that you're like, oh, I'm brilliant. I know what procedure is going to work and save this person. Or it might just be like, well, I don't know, but I'm going to, I'm going to be here for you no matter what. And we're going to keep, you know, working through this. We're going to keep talking through it. We'll keep, we'll keep seeking, you know, you don't give up on somebody. Maybe it's just about um, sort of, you know, having them make closure with things. I think that one of the things that people um, who are left behind that have a loved one die, they are, they're cursed (laughs) by the thought that they had so much left that was unsaid between them and that person who died. Mm. And now all of a sudden they feel like that person's gone and I don't know how to communicate with that. Like they think, okay, well, they're, they're gone. Their body's not here anymore. Therefore I can't communicate with them anymore. Well, I don't think that that's true as we talked about earlier, but um, I think that that's, that's another piece is just like allowing people to have real conversations. Like don't be mean, but don't like, don't hold back. Like be, be honest with people. I think that that goes a really long way. Like don't, don't say like, Oh, I can't help you anymore. Like there's always a way you can help. Right. Mm. Like 
I don't want to be that doctor that says, well, I don't know. I can't help you anymore. Like that. Why would that be the end of the conversation? Obviously, if we're talking about past lives and future lives and, and like endless, an endless string of a thing, like why would, why would my ability to help somebody end? Right. Mm -hmm. Like we're just, we just need to get more creative is all. Yeah. It's, it's interesting too, that like doctors and physicians in general are present at those like crazy events of people's lives. Those like really deep Mm -hmm. events like birth, Mm -hmm. death, serious illness, like the fundamental like sufferings of humanity. But yet Mm -hmm. like in a lot of ways, a lot of medical programs kind of just throw you to the wolves. Like this is what medicine is. You learn it, but then you're thrown into the world of like, I can't even help this person. Um, And I don't even know what to say to them because Mm -hmm. like, what, what can you say to a person that's dying? Um, Other than, you know, that what's happening to them is some, is their you basically like that person is you at a later point. And you are really just as afraid of that person dying as they are, because that's just like a kind of reflection of, um, you know what it is. And then any kind of like sugar coating or anything does disservice to everybody ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That idea of like the last thing you'll ever say to somebody, it trips me out on a regular basis. I think about it really often of like trying to like make every conver- uh, conversation count. Cause like you never know like when the last one will be. And in fact, like you're almost never notified of it. Like you'll just remember in your memory of like, Oh, that was the last time I talked to them and you'll remember. And it's like, yeah. And I didn't even know, like at the time I was talking to them as if like, it was for sure going to continue or something, but yeah, but that's always how it is potentially. And like, that goes back to what we were saying earlier offline. (laughs) (laughs) We have a secret offline, secret offline episode coming out soon. (laughs) Offline is like the entire world. And so, um, but like, Oh man, I, I even lost my train of thought because I got got so caught yeah. up in like, yeah. the offline world. Yeah. <laughs> the offline world. Um, I don't even know. Well, I don't even know. Let's let's bring this into. So we talked about a lot of things. We talked about many mystical things and intuition. And how do you actually apply that in helping people heal? Mm. Right. Like, where does intuition actually come in, and can it be taught as part of like a medical program or something? Oh, that'd be so great. Well, I know that there are like energy medicine uh, programs and things like that, that, you know, extend, those are sort of separate, I guess you could say, from our training, um, at least as it's uh, formulated today. But um, I think that there's some really great opportunity for bringing in intuition into our profession. And the reason that I love our profession and why I chose it is because yes, you know, we talk about root cause and we're seeking that out. And there's just so many treatments that we can offer a patient. So it's not just symptom management, but like we are wondering about the individual. We're wondering about, you know, their daily practices and their stress level and things like that. Um, And like what medications and supplements they're taking, but we're also wondering about like spiritual practices and like what makes them happy and do they have time to do those things and um we I think we do 
when we take the time to, we tap into um, more than, I guess you could call it integrative medicine or you could call it functional medicine. I mean, there's a lot of sort of like trendy terms these days for really just like, we're just trying to figure out what this person's life is like, you know, like, is it optimal for them? And so, and I think that the nice thing is there's, you know, when we talk about like energetic medicine, I think that that could mean so many things. I mean, it can mean like, okay, so you're like doing Reiki on somebody. Like you might seek out like a craniosacral training or a Reiki thing or like a bodywork thing or acupuncture I think is actually very spiritual. Um, not that that's part of our training, but it is part of what's offered at our school. And I think that like low-dose herbs and when we're talking about literal like energetic doses of things like homeopathy and flower essences and undas and even using like the full herb, like taking one drop of like the full, the whole plant and like experiencing plant medicine and like journaling about that. Like there's so many ways that we can sort of like use the intuition of like nature that's already sort of imprinted. And you're an herbalist. So I know that you know what I'm talking about. Like obviously like the doctrine of signatures, the whole plant has this energetic signature that we, when we even like, this is one of my favorite things to do is like, you have like the blinded tincture bottles and you mm -hmm. take one drop without knowing what you're taking. And you ha might have like the answer written on the bottom of the bottle and you just do like a little meditation after you take the drop and you might journal a little bit and say, okay, well, do I see any visions? Like, do I have any experiences with this? Like, how do I, do I feel it in a certain part of my body? Do I feel a certain sensation? Mm. What does it make me feel? And then you like find out what that tincture was. And it's like, oh, that's so cool. You can like feel like the plant medicine inside of you. So I feel like there's so much, there's so much opportunity for um, just sort of like intuition and, and just deeper wisdom of mm. natural treatments. So much to be said uh, for that when the mind quiets right? down and you just observe all of the different sensations, like you could come to information that you can never get in a lab. And that's really mm -hmm. just as important as that, as that research is like the experience of it and how you can kind of share that with other people. Right. And I think that what's really fascinating for me is that how low doses of something act very different from high doses mm. of that same thing, but that both can have a benefit. And I think that another reason that I love our profession, or at least the type of training that we are getting, that we got specifically at NUNM, which is a little bit different from some of the other naturopathic colleges, but we are being trained as primary care physicians. So we can do like preventative services for people. We can prescribe medications. We can also prescribe a homeopathic. We could also do, you know, manipulations and body work and we can do counseling for them. And, and there's just so many amazing things. And we can do minor surgeries and IV therapies and some of these higher sort of like higher risk, higher, um, more in, um, intervention. In, yeah. And yet there's a place for all of it. Like I, that's why I'm not, I don't, I mean, I might one day come upon a specialty, but for me, it's just like, oh my gosh, isn't it amazing how many different things we can do for one single person. And many of these therapies can work so well together. And I think that that is also a piece where the intuition comes in is like, well, who's to say we have to do one thing over the other? Like who's to say one thing is better? 
I mean, sometimes these things act synergistically so well, like these therapies act so well together. And it's really about like meeting the person where they're at. Um, like what is the cost to them? Because, you know, we have to weigh the fact that some of these therapies are covered by insurance and some aren't, and some might not be very much money out of pocket. So we're not too concerned with it. And some of them are very expensive out of pocket, but so many of the therapies are like amazing and great. And like, we want to do it for all the patients if we could. So we kind of have to sort of play that game too. But I think it is like, it's so cool to be constantly learning about all of the ways that we can help somebody because I don't mm -hmm. feel like we really ever run out of options. And that's something that the medical profession and the patients, they need to hear that there are more options because what if that first treatment didn't work out? No problem. We'll just move to these other things because we had some backup plans. And I just... I feel like eventually you find something that works for everybody, or at least it works for a period of time. And then because we're not just static beings, maybe in a couple months, we need something else. Um, that's one of the things I like about Undas is these combined, like sort of like low dose herbals. And they're these combination formulas that a lot of times you start with one particular formula for somebody and they might take it for a month. And then the next month, they might be a little bit of a different person or like sort of with different needs at that point, because they've sort of gone through whatever transformation or detoxification or whatever you want to call it over that past month that they come back and they need something else because they're not just a static being. We're always evolving. And so we need like our treatments to evolve with it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think that there's intuition like all over our medicine and we just have to kind of tune in and be open to that individual and I think for me personally, really shy away from prescribing the same types of recipes and formulas over and over and over again for different people, because I think we really just need to be doing individualized medicine. Mm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, uh, tailoring the medicine to the person, because everyone, you know, they might have the same, you know, diagnosis, but... Mm -hmm they're for completely different reasons. Totally. So you, you treat the root cause of that diagnosis, not the actual diagnosis. And even actually more than that, not even the root cause of the disease, but the, the person in front of you and the whole aspect of everything, because everything plays into everything. You know, somebody's like mental, emotional, spiritual state dictates whether or not they have the motivation to go for a run or whether they eat well, because if they don't, um, you know, care about their lives, why would they want to take all this effort and make lifestyle change, right? And I also feel like, you know, for those people that are like all about homeopathy, that's great. But like homeopathy isn't going to work for everybody. I don't care how much you want to argue with me on that point. If somebody is closed off to doing a homeopathic, there's a chance that it won't work. And that doesn't mean that the medicine doesn't work. I mean, sometimes those low dose, uh, those low dose UNDA formulas work really well. Other times I would argue that they don't, or they're not what that person needs at that time. And, you know, sometimes you have medications that work really well for some people. And then other times it's like, oh man, those were horrible side effects. Same diagnosis, same dosage, same medication. And yet they had a reaction, a negative reaction. Maybe someone else had a positive reaction. Like we're all different. 
And there's no way that one diet is going to fit everybody either. And, you know, one thing that I'm passionate about is um, kind of getting away from diet culture, because in our profession, we talk so much about, uh, well, eating, you know, what, whatever it is, whatever you want to call it, paleo, whole 30, autoimmune, what an anti-inflammatory diet, someone's vegan, someone's vegetarian, someone's keto, everybody's like got their own opinion about the best diet. But I don't think that that's a one size fits all. I think that's a really dangerous thing to do. Some people want to do intermittent fasting. Well, what happens when your patient has an eating disorder? Like absolutely not appropriate, right? Like we have to meet the patient where they're at and be willing to drop our own judgments and preconceived like, oh, well, this works really well for me. I feel really good when I do this, like Mm. good for you, but don't, don't project that onto the patient because that really is your own baggage. And that's such a hard thing to do because we get really excited about things that work for us personally. Mm -hmm. And we want to share it with everybody and preach about how great this one thing is and how it's just going to save the world. If we were all to go fast let's start fasting and we're all going to do it. Like you and me talked about fasting before we started recording in the offline (laughs) in the multiverse. That's going to be available for purchase. But like if it's not recorded though, so you're going to have to tune in intuitively to that. Um, But uh, using the training that you gained from listening to us. (laughs) That brings me back to uh, an interesting um, point about the root cause aspect of it is like, sometimes, you know, some root cause is found and it's like, that's the root cause of all disease. So like when one gets like really into like, you know, uh, the microbiome and everything, you can start seeing how like every disease is caused by it. Or like you start getting into like the mind and the psyche and spirituality, like every disease is caused by that. And you (laughs) just just keep finding these like root causes, which explain all diseases. And maybe they're just all different root causes. Like maybe there is no like one size fits all, like maybe one person it's their microbiome, the other person it's their, you know, past trauma and they have the same condition. Absolutely. And the thing is like all of these things that we talk about in medicine and like even the conversation we're having right now, it's just fun games for our minds to play. Like we do not have it all figured out not even close. Like there are some brilliant people I've listened to that I'm like, oh man, they make that concept sound so good. And like, oh, the microbiome this and like, oh, epigenetics and like, oh, trauma, like let's heal the trauma and like, ooh, past life and like crystals, like great. Let's talk about all of it because it's all relevant. Like there is not one single thing. If there was one single thing, wouldn't we be more similar? I don't think that we're really we're not that similar. Sure. There are things that like make us feel united and like we can relate on, but we're, we're also individualized and there's a lot of weird shit that happens in the world that no one can really explain. Yeah. You know? Yeah. If you, you come to every situation with like, this is the answer and this is the reason, like, it doesn't matter what it is. Like there's going to be times where you're just shown contradictory evidence. And then what, what do you oh do my then, gosh. you know? Well, I mean, in the pandemic is like the best example of like what a shit show things <laughs> become when you try to like pin down one answer, like, 
oh, the hospital says, you know, let's do like this malaria. Nope, never mind. That's that's causing some bad shit. And then, oh, like the ventilators are great. Nope, never mind. Those are causing like really bad situations. And then, oh, look, high dose vitamin C. Oh, look, immune systems are a thing. Well, I actually like vitamin C IV, but like for forever, like the naturopathic doctors who were doing high dose vitamin C, oh, you guys are quacks. What are you doing? And now the hospitals are doing it and like pretending it was their idea, like whatever. We don't have the answers. Let's just like be nice to each other and like let people do things as long as you're not like killing them. <laughs> yeah, as long as you're not harming people. Or you're not like, <laughs> you don't have the intent to harm. And like, I, I mean, I don't know. People die from like medication reactions all the time. And they still, for the most part, keep those medications around. Um, I mean, it takes a long time for a drug to be removed <laughs> from the shelves. But mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just, it's, it were full of contradictory things kind of mm-hmm. flying around. Yeah, it's that, it's, that, it's like, hard to know. That's, that, mm-hmm. that existence of light and dark and the yeah. coexistence of multiple uh, opposing forces. Like mm-hmm. that's just what life is. And so I think that at least for me, I try to be as neutral as possible and understand like what you, you're posing a question earlier about like, is our life predetermined or whatever? Like I would argue that both are possible because, you know, I read a lot of astrology and to a degree you could argue that astrology is sort of like, here's your blueprint of your life and the planets and their movement will dictate like the things that will happen to you. But then on the other hand, it's like maybe astrology is sort of like you've got your genetics and then your epigenetics are like your own will. And some things you might be predestined, but you have some room to move mm. and reshape that. Like, why can't it be both, right? Why can't we have maybe a blueprint that we're working with, but it's flexible? Like there are lines there, but we can blend those, right? We can blur those. Um I think the truth is always somewhere in the middle, you know, but that's like usually the unpopular view because what gets like the press coverage is like this extreme and that extreme and what what gets people fired up and interested is like somebody who just does like pharmaceuticals are poison and herbal medicine heals everything. That's the person Mm -hmm. people are like, oh yeah. Rather than being like balanced of like, yeah, well, some pharmaceuticals are useful here. Herbal medicine is useful here. Having That's why our profession is amazing. Exactly. And like, yeah, I mean, it's really like, it's really to me, integrative medicine, which in my mind, it sits right in the middle where you see the benefit of all of it, but not all the time and not for every person. Like, you know enough about all your options to kind of understand when to pick and choose and do right by the patient and keep them safe and have like so many choices for them. Uh, because we all need a lot of choices. We need to be able to, to change our minds because Mm -hmm. it does, you know, it's not a one size fits all situation. So like Mm -hmm. I'm neutral in the middle. I wish everyone would just get along and stop shit talking. Like we don't need to trash MDs or DOs. We don't need them trashing us. Like we need to work together. We need to be part of one person's care team because wouldn't that be great if one patient, you know, could see, Mm a naturopathic doctor, um, if they wanted that person to be their primary care physician, they could see an acupuncturist, they could see a massage therapist, they could see an osteopath or an MD to manage like really specialized medications or 
you know, chiropractors, like there's a place for all of us. Mm-hmm. We all, I mean, we're experts in natural medicine. And I would argue that other medical professions can't make the same claim. But would I want to manage somebody's, you know, DMARD medications? Not really. Like, <laughs> no, let the specialist do that, that went to like four years of medical school and then, you know, uh, several years of residency and fellowship. Like, like specifically for that. that. Like yeah. the specialists are amazing, but we have to like understand where our boundaries each are and also like just respect each other. Like we all have knowledge and just like my, one of my pet peeves is like when, when a physician of whatever, it doesn't matter really what the profession is, whether it's naturopathic or MD, DO, or it's a question about, oh, does this treatment work? The patient asks something about this. And then the doctor's response, because they don't know any better, they say, no, that doesn't work. There's no evidence. And they sort of like push it off as being like, no, there's no evidence that doesn't work. Well, usually what that means is that doctor just doesn't have a lot of training in that particular subject that the patient asked about. So like, why can't we just say, oh, I'm not sure. Like, I can look more into that. Or, oh, I don't know. Why don't you do some research and like, show me what you find. Like, have a conversation about it. Don't just say, no, there's no evidence that nutrition has any bearing on diabetes. Like, really? You know, like Mm -hmm. some things that are just like ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Like nutrition doesn't have any effect on blank disease. Like we pretty much, we know because we have actually some nutritional training that that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Of course, food that we eat plays a huge role in our, you know, manifestation of disease. Mm -hmm. And we can't just say that there's no evidence because we just know that that's not true, but it's because there's not a lot of nutritional training on that side. Or that would be like us saying, oh, well, I don't know a lot about that medication. So I'm just going to say like, no, that's not safe. And just, you know, go there Mm -hmm. because I don't, I, because I just don't know any better and I don't want to admit that I don't know. So we Mm -hmm. have to be like comfortable with saying, well, I don't know. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk, let's talk to someone who knows. That's the real uh, enemy of progress is like, dogma and closed-mindedness like from any profession or from any group of people or from any ideology of just thinking like this is the way it is and not having the open enough mind to be like well you know maybe it could be like that I don't know too much about that so as long as the person has good intentions and they're trying their best and they're being honest like everyone has a place in the healing and that is exactly what is causing so much divisiveness Mm. with our in our world right now, regardless of healthcare professionals, Mm. it's like even members of the same family or close friends are at odds Mm. over the pandemic because one person thinks you should wear a mask and the other person thinks it's ridiculous. And they are at odds with each other. And there's this division because we're not giving, we're not maybe recognizing that, okay, maybe that person's just speaking out of fear and how fear can make us say and do ridiculous things and act, you know, react reactionary, mm-hmm. be reactionary about things that we're not, we're not grounded in saying that we, we have, it's like a stress response to something. All of a sudden we're in an argument because like, Oh no, masks are protecting us. No, no, they're not. And you just go on and on. And next thing you know, you're not talking to each other because we can't just say, well, I think that, yeah, there's totally benefits 
um, and some truths to both sides of that argument. And like, mm. not everything has to be an argument, right? Cause we're just, we're polarizing ourselves trying to like choose sides. Yeah. That's where I'm at, you know, right now with this whole situation, cause there's like a strong, like there's the more like conspiracy side of what's going on. Then there's the more like, this is the official yeah. version. And at this point, like, I just accepted that I just really don't know. Like, this is something way beyond my mind. And all I can do is like, think of like my life, my day to day, my sphere of influence and like, not allow, not like giving up my values, mm-hmm. you know, because so-and-so like, and like you never like, do that anyway. Like you said earlier, you never know when the last conversation you have with somebody might be the last, whether it's because they die. Like, I'm not saying it's because everyone's going to die. That'd be terrible. Imagine last conversations but, but, like wear a mask. Maybe it's yeah. But maybe <laughs> it's your last conversation because that person won't talk to you anymore after you said something, right? Like, everybody has, everybody's like kind of taking things personally now and feeling under attack, even though it, it wasn't meant to be personal, but we're, we're all kind of freaked out for varying reasons. And so you never know when something might just trigger somebody. And then all of a sudden they're like, I can't talk to you anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah, no, I'm with you though. I think that trying to be understanding, trying to be neutral and kind of trying to take that witness role and just focus on your stuff. And if you're someone that's like really sensitive or triggered easily, like don't watch the news, only limit yourself to a few minutes of social media a day, or like, you know, follow people on social media that are, give you positive influence and not necessarily like the people that really stir you up or, and same with the people that you choose to talk to. Like we actually have a situation now where we could choose to self-isolate if we wanted. And for some of us, that's like amazing. Like for <laughs> us introverts, like, hi, I'm like, oh good. I don't have to see you fuckers, you know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and other times I'm like, oh, I get to choose like who I talk to. I get to uh, like FaceTime with whomever I choose. Although of course there's some work-related things that I'm like, oh, I have to do this because I'm paid to do whatever. But mm-hmm. you know, for the most part, it's like, be intentional about what you put your time and energy into. And it's like, I'm just trying to remind myself of that all the time. Mm-hmm. Because like you said earlier in the offline multiverse, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's like, we're just sort of getting through life. And we needed this wake up call to be like, okay, get yourself out of the rat race. And like, stop and think about time to reevaluate some things. Mm. Maybe our lives pre-pandemic weren't all that great either. Let's look at some things that we could change for the better. Mm. And my hope, and this is a lofty goal, but my hope is that, Mm. you know, telemedicine is so expanded now. So our profession is able to reach more people. I hope that that continues to expand as far as, you know, where, where we can, what kinds of patients we can reach beyond state lines. And that gets like really difficult, but mm-hmm. even to just expand our profession licensure or, you know, to bring, bring it home that preventative medicine is so important because this is what we've been saying all along. Like, yes, immune systems are a thing. Preventative medicine is a thing that you have to practice yeah. like many days. You can't just do it one day of your life and expect that you're going to be the pinnacle of health all of a sudden. Like it's a lifestyle. It's, yeah. it's understanding that like, we do have a lot of sort of 
toxic things that we allow our things mm-hmm. our, ourselves to experience and do like every day. And there's preventative medicine, like outside of the, you know, conventional definition of what preventative medicine right. is, which is like, you know, screenings, vaccines, et cetera. Yeah. Like there's like <laughs> real, like real preventative yeah. of like, go outside, yes. fresh air, drink good water, eat good food, have good relationships, meditate, you know, some spiritual stuff, do what you love. That's preventative medicine too. Oh my God, Actually, so arguably right. even better preventative I'm medicine. I'm so glad you say. brought that up because <laughs> it's so true. Like the primary care model of preventative medicine is, okay, you're going to get this, these screening labs today. You're going to get these like images, uh, your colonoscopy, your mammogram, whatever. And, oh, we didn't find anything. So you're good to go. Don't change anything you're doing, even though you might like be horribly stressed, eat like shit like hardly sleeping, depressed, you know, you hate your job. Like, why is that living life to your fullest? It's like, oh, we didn't find any tumors. You're good to go for another one, two, five, 10 years. Right. It's such a disservice. It's such a, it's such a false sense of health to cut, to have your lab work come back normal and say you're healthy or to have nothing found on a scan, you're healthy. Like, but how are we defining health? And you're so right. It's like, there's so much our medicine, like at its core, our medicine is like true preventative medicine. Yeah, we can order the labs for you. Yeah, we can get the screenings done for you. But that's just like scratching the surface. Yeah, they have value for who they do. That's just checking the primary care boxes, right? Like, And those only happen really at certain times of your life anyway. It's not like we just start those from infancy and then we track you every year along the way. Like that'd be kind of, that'd be ridiculous and overkill. But like, we're talking about all the foundations that we've, we've discussed. Like Mm -hmm. just because you don't find a tumor doesn't mean you're living an optimal life. Um, And so, yeah, there are a lot of drawbacks to primary care. And like, I know one thing, I mean, we've been talking for like, like lifetimes already, but, yeah. <laughs> but uh, many past but lives. One thing, one thing I just want to say before, like whenever we choose to end the conversation, but is that, you know, the insurance model, especially for like the naturopathic profession, it is while it's great to be able to have our, co- our services covered for certain individuals in Oregon, where we have a really great scope of practice, you know, the insurance is like, it's such a tough thing because there's a lot of discrimination against our profession um, Mm. as far as reimbursement amounts. Like we'll do the same service as an MD, a DO, a nurse practitioner, a physician's assistant. Keep in mind that a physician's assistant has less training than we have, and they still get reimbursed more for the exact same service. So there's a lot of discrimination that goes into that. And yes, can we, maybe can we reach more patients through insurance? I don't know. I'm not going to say yes or no, because, um, I think that depending on how you have your business model set up, there are ways to reach a lot of people. You just have to make sure that like your bills are paid. And maybe it means that if you do a cash practice, which by the way, it doesn't mean you're greedy just because you're doing a cash practice. I think that, you know, there was an MD that in Medscape wrote an article talking about the benefits and the merits of a cash practice and how it's actually better in the long run for the patient to have a cash practice. Because you no longer, if you're outside of the insurance model, you're no longer stuck in this system that is a rat race where in order to pay your bills based on what the insurance may or may not reimburse you within 90 days of submitting your claim, um, you have to schedule patients 
every uh, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, if you're really luxurious. And that means that, you know, that includes time with an MA and maybe getting blood drawn and all the little, you know, getting in and out the door, billing and all that, that the doctor now, it's not the doctor's fault. It's the system that's broken. Like Mm -hmm. you can't blame the doctor for only spending five minutes with you. It's not because the MD, DO is a shitty human and they don't care about you. No, they're fucking tired and they are trying to get you out of that visit so that they can start another one because the insurance isn't reimbursing for shit. Mm. And so if we do a cash practice model, um, we can decide how much time we spend and then that amount, you know, we can price the visit based on maybe the amount of time or how complex the visit was, or if it's new or, you know, return. And I think that, you know, some people might ask, okay, well, what about people that are low income? Like how do they afford to do a cash practice? Well, let's say 80% of the time you set your visit cost at this much and you think that, you know, 80% of patients can pay that. And then 20% of your patients, you dedicate to doing a sliding scale or something like there are maze, there, a lot of ways to make it work. And I think that insurance is like, whew, it's a tough sell. And the thing is, the patients aren't really happy with their insurance companies either. Like <laughs> they still end up paying co-pays and deductibles. And like, at the end of the day, maybe it doesn't save a whole lot of money considering the type and the quality of service that they end up with. Like maybe they have mm. to go in for four different visits to get the doctor to even address all the things that they wanted that maybe we could address. Right. If That's we were given point. them 30 minutes or an hour we might be able to address more things. And it's just like, it's a balance because, you know, you don't want to do too much at once, but you don't want to just, let's talk about the rash and give you a cream and then you're on your way. Like, well, what about the other things? We didn't even get to talk about the juicy preventative lifestyle, like the stuff that makes us us, you mm. know? There's just and no it's time. when medicine is dictated by like business interest and uh, money and insurance companies and, you know, legalities rather than what it should be guided by, which is what helps the person. Yeah. That's really should be like the main consideration. But a lot of times that goes to the wayside because of the system that's developed. I mean, it would be unth- just in my mind, it'd be unthinkable to like imagine a physician from like 2000 years ago, even like you know, you know, because they can't like diagnose somebody with something saying like, nothing's wrong with you. It's like, they just had a simpler way of viewing it, which is like, we're here to help the person and we don't understand the condition. So like everything matters, like their mind state, their spiritual health, like how could that not be important? Um, And like in our profession, I know that we're a small profession as naturopathic doctors, but I don't want those of us in within our profession to be afraid to go to veer outside of the insurance model because it's so limiting for us to stay within those confines and to be at the whim of someone essentially some higher higher power dictating what your worth is for that service and i'm not saying that it would be an easy transition for people to snap their fingers and go from taking insurance to cash practice like yeah that takes time to build a clientele you know but i think that um I mean, we've known for a long time that our healthcare system is broken. And so I just think we have to, we have to think about the possibility that our time, you know, we can, we can put a price tag on 
on our time and, and give people more of our time. Um, and, you know, the justification in doing that is that you just, you charge more and maybe you don't do it for every patient, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can, maybe you can't afford to do it for every patient because your schedule will be empty at first, but we've got to start somewhere because we can't just lock into the insurance and feel like we're a slave to the insurance companies because it's just, it's not enough. Like we're just not able to give patients enough. And if we give them more time, we end up taking less money for more time and then we end up burned out and that's not good for anybody either. Mm. You know, It's a really complex situation. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how, um, how things evolve. I mean, it, this isn't even like a, a problem within just the naturopathic profession. I mean, I hear all the time, uh, you know, um, MDs and DOs, like actually probably the majority of them that I've ever heard ever speak on the subject are all tired also of the insurance model oh, are all also trying to get out of it. So it's weird that well, our profession being, in a lot know, of ways is trying to get into great. it. It's like a sinking right. ship that we're trying to hop yeah. on that everyone yeah. on the ship before is hopping off. It's like, why are we? Right. No, it's, it's really direction? interesting. I know it's interesting. It's almost like you've made it as long as insurance can cover it. You've like, you've made it, your profession's made it. Here you are, you're signed up to work for the rest of your life and not seeing patients for longer than a few minutes at a time, being buried in paperwork and charting. And that's what your life will become. Um, because, you know, you're trying to work within those confines. And I think that there are ways to simplify it and streamline it a little bit more if you are going to take insurance. But I just think that we have to like, we really have to take a look at it. And then like, we have to have patient buy-in and say, look, your average office visit with a doctor, you'll see them for maybe this many minutes, whereas you will see us for this many. Um, and it, it is a little bit more of an investment up front, but hopefully it will pay off down the road where you'll be able to dig into these things earlier on and they won't cause a lot of extra office visits down the road because you've, mm-hmm. you've caught it earlier. Um, right. And I mean, uh, this profession, I mean, from all the students and, and doctors that I've talked to, um, are really just some of the most open-minded people of all time that I, that I've met um, in terms of being open to views that they might not agree with. So what I've noticed is even like naturopaths who don't like necessarily agree with what you think, like they're always willing to listen and kind of be more on the open side of things rather than like shutting people down. Um, You know, just interested in really seeing what is true and, that's part of, you know, why we're, why we're small. You know, we haven't been influenced by these like bigger political aspects of medicine right. so much so that we can still be focused on, you know, the thing that really matters, which is healing. So that it's actually yeah. really kind of nice that we're relatively small of our profession because uh, yeah. we're less influenced by. Well, I think that our profession is definitely growing and, you know, it's what, it's what patients want. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had a patient come in and they say, well, you know, what made we ask, what made you choose our clinic? And they say, well, my other doctor doesn't spend enough time with me or they're not listening to me or this, this, this. And and then we're like, well, you know, that because you're on, you know, Medicare, for example, you're going to have to pay out of pocket for these visits. Like we want to be respectful of budget. And they said, I don't even care. I just want a doctor that listens to me or my doctor won't even like touch me or do like a physical exam and all these things. It's like, and we can't, again, we can't blame the doctor right? Like we can't blame the fact that that doctor gets five minutes with that patient. It is not their fault. It's probably not their choice. Um, but it is a reality and it is not good patient care. Mm -hmm. It's just not. It's interesting too, that there's this like idea that there's like 
a doctor, right? When really it's just like a human who has learned like the art of medicine to some degree. And like, everybody's different. Like they learn this, they learn that they're this kind of person. They're that kind of person. So it's like, that's really the question of, you know, which, which doctor's right for you is like, which person is right for you really. Right. And like maybe take the doctor off the pedestal because it, you know, the, the doctor used to be God and it didn't matter what they told you, you believed them. And I think that it's it's really important to have patient buy-in because otherwise you won't have compliance or you'll have people doing things out of fear rather than an understanding or you know feeling educated and empowered about why they're doing the things. And I think that maybe there's a ceiling to the type of healing that can occur if a patient doesn't really fully understand why they're doing something. I think that if someone's really connected with like, okay, we've talked about this and we, you know, my doctor's educated me about this and we've talked about all the reasons why this change in my lifestyle might be positive. And then you have the patient really fully understanding and like it clicks for them. They're going to do so much better, right? They're not going to be like, oh, I can't eat that food because I fear that then this will happen. Like that's not the point, right? Mm. Um, I think that we can have a lot, there's a greater potential for healing if the patient's really like, really truly on board. Not just like we're talking at them and we're talking down to them and we're like, oh, well, we know so much more because we went to school and paid this much money and did this study. So we know better than you. It's like, at the end of the day, it's their body and it's their life. And we've got to do what is right by them. Mm-hmm. And we're sharing in that journey, right? We're le- learning as much from the patients as they are from us in okay. a lot of ways, because they're our experience of healing. You know, we have our interests and we look into things, but at the end of the day, until you try something for a person, you don't really know like if it's uh, how effective it is as like a treatment. Well, and the thing is like, I'm so young compared to my average patient. Like that person has so much more life experience than I do. Who the hell am I telling them what they should be doing? Like I'm learning from them most of the time, just about life, just about like, wow, that horrible thing happened to you. Tell me about how you recovered from that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I'm learning from my patients all the time and it's not always an age thing, but I am always learning from my patients because everybody's got their own unique story and like suffering that they've learned from and like mm-hmm. come out of they've come out stronger and even in their struggles or even in their, in their not knowing what to do, there's vulnerability there. And we all have something to learn just from connecting with somebody else and having that person trust us enough to tell us their like personal shit. Mm -hmm. So like totally we're learning from patients all the time, all the time. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm so spoiled. I get paid to learn from this person about this, right? Like I learn from patients all the time. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. Well, it's been uh, it's been an absolute pr- uh, pleasure to talk. <laughs> In interest of uh, making this a four hour episode, right? For, I know you might have to divide yours. it up. A bit. Well, we'll definitely do another episode. That's for sure. Um, but thank you, uh, Dr. Angela Hardin. Uh, where can people find you if they want to? Well, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, my professional account is at dr.angela.harden, um, dr. Angela Harden. And um, I'm in the process of a website, still in the works. 
And then Bogdan, I will definitely be picking your brain more because I am also in the infant stages of a podcast with a friend of mine who's a chiropractor. And I can't say more than that because it's all very infant stages. Um, but yes, you can find me on Instagram. Do you guys have a name yet? Yes, but I'm not revealing it yet. Okay. Big reveal next episode. Oh, we'll reveal <laughs> next episode. Exactly. Uh, and yes, you can, if you're, if you're a patient, you can find me at the NUNM clinic, at least for the next few months while I still have a job. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you for being on the show. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you for having me and for the very scintillating conversation as always. Yes, indeed.